Ah, Tim, come in. Uh, do sit down. It's very formal. Well, um, yeah. This is an odd moment for me because I had the same moment with my father when I just turned 21, and after it, my life was never the same. So I approach it pretty um, nervously. Okay. When you're ready, it's all very mysterious. Uh, right. Tim, my dear son, uh, the, uh, the simple fact is the men in this family have always had the ability to, this is going to sound strange, be prepared for strangeness, get ready for spooky time. Uh, but there's this family secret, and the secret is that the men in the family can Travel in time. Well, more accurately, travel back in time. We can't travel into the future. This is such a weird joke. It's seriously not a joke. So you're saying that you and Grandad and his brothers could all travel back in time? Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can... Um, if it's true, uh, which it isn't. Although it is. Although it isn't, obviously. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. Which it isn't. But if it was, how would I actually... But how is the easy bit, in fact. You go into a dark place. Big cupboards are very useful, generally. Toilets at a pinch. Then you clench your fists like this. Think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there after a bit of a stumble and a rumble and a tumble. Wow. That's a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called About Time. Critics didn't particularly like it. It wasn't nominated for any awards, but I liked the soundtrack. It's cute and romantic. And ultimately, I think it gives us a profound way of thinking about uh, our lives and, and what this life is that God has created for us. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to begin the message today with... I don't know, some pretend time travel. If you wanted to escape the sub-zero temperatures of Iowa and you could travel in time, where would you go? But we got to play by the rules of about time. It has to be somewhere you've actually been in your life. Might be somewhere warm and tropical, but maybe it's just one of the best days of your life. You would like to leave this day and go back in time to one of the best days of your life. So I don't know what it is for you, but let's all stand up. And I want you to spend about a minute talking with someone close to you. If you don't know them, everybody stand up. Introduce yourself to the person next to you. Where would you travel in time if you had the ability to travel in time? All right, we'll cut it off there. You can talk about it more after worship if you'd like to. Uh, take a seat. Thanks for playing along, everybody. Our annual theme this year at Hope is 12 books in 12 months. Each month of the year, we're taking a look at a different book of the Bible. It's kind of exciting. We've already uh, worked our way through two books of the Bible, the book of Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians. We've talked about those already today. A new message series, Miracle March, working our way through the book of Mark. So the Bible has the first half, the Old Testament, everything leading up to the birth of Jesus. And then the second half is the New Testament, everything that happens uh, with the birth of Jesus and then moving forward. And the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And scholars will tell us the very first of the Gospels to be written is the Gospel of Mark. So we're about to read the very first thing that Jesus says in the very first Gospel to be written. It's on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And gospel is just a fancy word that means good news. When Jesus arrives, it's always good news. When when Jesus arrives in a world where a lot of things have gone wrong or in a life where a lot of things have gone wrong, it is good news. And what part of what a miracle means, it's that Jesus comes along and Jesus takes whatever it is that has gone wrong and Jesus makes it right. And so we'll be looking at some of these miracles of Jesus during Miracle March. The first miracle is the miracle of the incarnation. Talked about it a little bit last week, this idea that Christianity is an embodied faith, that we believe in a God who takes on a human body, God incarnate in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus is talking about the incarnation in this verse. He calls it the time promised by God. The incarnation, the time promised by God has come at last. And that phrase at last has really stood out to me this week as I've been uh, reading through this passage. At some level, the phrase at last carries with it a sense of relief. In a couple of weeks, when the temperature finally hits 50, there's going to be people running all over central Iowa wearing shorts because at last we've got some good weather. So we put up with all the crummy weather. At last, it's a sense of relief. We survived it. We made it through. But on the other hand, sometimes when we use the word at last, it carries a bit of desperation, like finally, what took so long? And so when Jesus says the time promised by God has come at last, part of me wonders, why was that the right time? What about 50 years earlier, 100 years earlier, 500 years earlier? Couldn't those people use this time promised? Couldn't they have used some good news? And I wonder if anyone who was there when Jesus uttered these words found themselves kind of muttering under their breath, it's about time. It's about time. It really is. It's about time. And the Greek word for time, well, there's a couple of Greek words that would be important for us to note. One is the Greek word chronos. And chronos, we get our word chronological. Uh, from It's the idea of time that can be measured with calendars and clocks, time that keeps tick, tick, ticking along. On Saturday afternoons, my normal rhythm is to drive around and just talk through the message and So yesterday I had to take our 12-year-old son, uh, Shaden, to Johnston to go and see a movie. And so I was talking through lucky kids of mine, right? They get to listen to the sermon in the car. And he, he says, well, if Mark came first, if it was the first one to be written, why isn't it Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John? Why, don't they, why isn't it the first gospel? He's thinking in terms of chronological time. Most We live our lives in chronological time, but Jesus doesn't. And the word that Jesus uses here uh, for time is not chronos, instead he uses the word kairos. And we'll put the definition of kairos up on the screen from the Oxford English Dictionary, the propitious moment for the performance of an action or the coming into being of a new state. And now you understand kairos time, right? (laughs) I don't know exactly what that means. Here's how I like to think about it. Show me a picture. So think of the yellow arrow as a chronological timeline of biblical history. And it begins with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then you've got Noah and the ark, or uh, the matriarchs and the patriarchs, kings like King David and King Solomon, uh, exile into Assyria and Babylon. But at some point in biblical history, you get the incarnation. 
You get the birth of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the world was one way leading up to that moment, and then the world has been a different way following that moment. A defining moment in human history, in world history, a kairos moment when God's time intersects with our time. That might be a definition that's a little more helpful or easy to remember. Kairos is when God's time intersects with our time. And this happens in all kinds of ways. Uh, it happens uh, a lot of different ways in our life. Typically, when we're thinking of these kairos moments, we're thinking of the big defining moments of our life. It could be a graduation, uh, an engagement, a, a wedding, the birth of a child, a death of someone that you care about, defining moments, kairos moments. One of the beautiful things about the way God works in the world, these kairos moments, defining moments in our life, are often almost hidden or unnoticed kinds of moments. Even the birth of Jesus happens in this kind of out-of-sight uh, place, out-of-sight way. Not very much fanfare with the birth of Jesus, but it's a moment that changes everything. Well, think of those of you who are married... Uh, your wedding day would be a Kairos moment, but there would be Kairos moments that led up to that moment. Maybe it was a look she gave or a word he spoke, and in that moment, something was confirmed deep within your heart. This is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. And you may not celebrate the anniversary of that Kairos moment, but without it, you may not have the actual wedding day. Kairos moments. I've talked about my college experience before, but I had multiple Kairos moments during, during college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And so my junior year, I show up for college and my advisor says, Scott, you have to pick a major. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to take the classes to actually get a degree. And so I went with communication because at Central College, you could take acting classes and it counted toward a communication degree. And I thought, well, that's kind of easy. Let's do that. Uh, my senior year, I was with a group of about 16 people we would go out on the weekends and we would go to churches in kind of small town Iowa. If the pastor was on vacation or the pastor just needed a break from preaching, uh, we'd show up and we'd have a, like a 30 or 40 minute program with songs and skits and just talking about what we're learning, what God is up to in our life, that sort of thing. And so I had a song called Thy Will Be Done, kind of loosely based on the Lord's Prayer. And I'd give a spiel before it. I'm a senior communication major, going to be graduating in a couple of months, have no idea what I want to do after graduation, but I'm trusting God as a plan, that God's will will be worked out in my life. And that was fine in January and February. But as we got closer and closer to graduation, by the time we got to May, that was kind of an anxious thing. I had to change the spiel. I'm going to be graduating in a couple of weeks, and I have no idea what I'm going to do after graduation. And I hope and pray God has a plan for my life. Thy will be done. So in May of 1994, we were at a church in Davenport, Iowa. And I'd never been to that church before. I've never been to that church since. And after the worship service, the pastor, whose name I have no idea what his name was, first time I'd ever met him, only time I've ever met him in my life, as far as I know, walks up to me, looks me in the eyes and says, I think God's calling you into full-time ministry and you're just fighting it off. And I kind of chuckled and said, well, maybe like a Christian version of Saturday Night Live, but I am not going to write sermons and preach weekend after weekend. That would be crazy. <laughs> Kairos moment in my life. A defining moment where God opened my eyes to some possibilities that I'd never really considered or thought about before. A new way of looking at myself, looking at my future. Kairos moment, defining moment. It is no accident that the college ministry Hope has at Iowa State University through our Ames campus there, it's called Kairos. 
for 18 to 23-year-olds or 24-year-olds or however long it takes people to go through college these days. These are really defining time in people's lives. Who am I? What is God up to in my life? Where is God taking? What, what are the plans that God has for my life? And they meet on Wednesday nights, hundreds of college students, many of them who grew up here in Ankeny and now are going to Iowa State, and they gather together to explore when does Kairos time intersect with Kronos time? God's time intersect with my time. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus is talking about these kairos moments, the time promised by God has come at last. And then in the next verse, verse 16, let's read together what goes on. Read it out loud with me. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. They fished for a living. So what Jesus is doing in this story, he sees a couple professional professional fishermen, and he calls out to them, follow me, leave your job, leave your profession, and I want you to become a full-time disciple of Jesus Christ. God is always calling out to all of us, follow me, follow me, it's part of the reason why you're here, responding to that call of God in your life to follow me. Most of the time, God doesn't call people to leave their profession and become, you know, full-time ministers or pastors or on staff at a church or that sort of thing. I want you to pay attention to the phrase, they fished for a living. The way they spent the majority of their time. The way they spent the majority of their time, Jesus leverages that. You used to fish for a living, now I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. So what is the way you spend the majority of your time? Where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? And what would it look like for you to give God permission to like intersect with your time, with, with your life, and to leverage what you're already doing, how you're already spending your time for the sake of the good news of the kingdom of God? You know, a lot of times people have these questions. What do I major in? What career path should I take? What job should I take? Good questions, important questions. Maybe an even better question would be, am I aware, am I paying attention to the ways in which God's time is intersecting with my time, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, however I'm spending my time? It happens a lot in this movie uh, about time. Uh, Tim takes this miracle of time travel, and initially he uses it to try to create these defining moments. He's got a roommate who writes plays. He uses time travel to help his roommate become a successful playwright. He uses it to help his sister on the uh, road to recovery. He uses it to, when he meets this woman that he would like to date who ends up becoming his wife, he uses time travel to kind of help that process along. But he has this real Kairos moment when he sits down for a conversation with his father uh, at one point in the movie. And his father has a lesson to teach Tim about the secret of time travel. Take a look. And so he told me his secret formula for happiness. Part one of the two-part plan that I should just get on with ordinary life, living it day by day like anyone else. This is, okay. State was revised with that paragraph there, highlighted. Rupert, is that the best you can do? No. No, but absolutely not. We can change that. Item number two. Uh,
Good afternoon, sir. Eating in or taking away today? Um, take away. Yeah? No problem. Lovely, that's 424 then, please, sir. Thank you kindly. Do you find the defendant, John Welbeck, guilty or not guilty of fraud? Not guilty. And that is the verdict of you all? Yes. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank God. Let the defendant be discharged. Be upstanding in court. Then came part two of Dad's plan. He told me to live every day again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. Okay, Dad. Let's give it a go. So not such a bad day after all. No, it's pretty good, really. Very good day, actually, as it turns out. A pretty good day, really, when your eyes are open and you're paying attention and you notice even the littlest of things that make this life so sweet. Uh, the song that was playing in the background is a song called Gold in Them Hills by Ron Sexsmith. And at one point he sang the lyrics, if we'd only open our eyes, we'd see the blessings in disguise. Jesus in Mark chapter 1 calls these fishermen, follow after me, I'll teach you how to fish for people. And part of the way Jesus does this is by opening their eyes. Uh, later on in the Gospels, he'll say things like, I have come to open the eyes of the blind. People who are physically blind, yes, but also just as important, maybe even more important, opening the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. 
The New Testament writers just pick up on this language over and over. Part of what it means to be people who are growing and maturing in our faith is we're people who are continually having our eyes opened by God. Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead. Open your eyes, start to see things the way God is wanting you to see things. When, when Jesus invites us into the kingdom of God, this good news of the kingdom of God, part of the good news is it's already here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you have eyes to see it? Will you allow God to open your eyes to see how much God loves you? Open your eyes to see more and more all the time the reality of grace and forgiveness the possibility of new life and transformation and growth and maturity. This is really, really good news. This kind of stuff is possible in our lives. But the enemy of God, the devil is sometimes the way the biblical writers refer to the enemy of God. The devil has a way of taking things that are good and convincing us they're not really good. And one of the ways this happens as we're growing and maturing as followers of Jesus is we can be celebrating the change that's happening, the growth that's happening on one hand, and on the other hand, still feel this sense of disappointment that it took this long for the change to occur. I was talking with a guy earlier this week, a young guy, early 30s, and he was just telling me about some of the hard lessons that he's been learning in his life over the last year or two. And at one point in the conversation, just kind of shaking his head with a real tone of disappointment, said, I wish I had learned those lessons five years ago, 10 years ago. Talking with a woman in her 50s who for much of her life has battled this temptation to care a little too much about what other people think of her how other people view her. She's been working with God on this and it's getting better and better and so much so she's grown so comfortable in her own skin and just owning the identity that God has given her that she doesn't really pay attention anymore to what other people might think. But something happened this week that brought back those old tapes and all those old feelings and she found herself just kind of disappointed by that. Thought I was over that. I thought I'd outgrown that. I thought it was better by now. And so I'm drawn to these words of Jesus. The time promised by God has come at last. And there's a part of that. I'm growing, I'm maturing, I'm making changes. At last it's getting better. And at the same time, I think it's easy to find ourselves singing along with the faces 1973 hit, Ooh La La. I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger. And we all have those kinds of things, those kinds of moments, those kinds of I don't know, patterns in our life. I wish I'd figured this out a long time ago. But, but what if there's a better way? What if there's a healthier mindset for us to have about life? What if there's a, you know, a more faithful mindset? Instead of being upset and disappointed and, and loaded with regret and maybe even shame uh, that we didn't figure it out sooner, what if we could live with this mindset that somehow I believe, I have faith, I am confident God has been at work for the good in the midst of all of this the whole time. You know, look at the Apostle Paul. There's a great deal of time that Paul spends in his life attacking Christians, hating Christians, arresting Christians, doing whatever he can to make sure Christianity doesn't grow and doesn't spread. And then he has this Kairos moment, defining moment, conversion experience in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, changes everything. He's no longer Saul, now he's Paul, and he begins to point everybody he can to Jesus and encouraging them to believe in Jesus, to shape their lives, pattern their lives after Jesus. Someone could look at the Apostle Paul's life and say, sure wasted a whole lot of time back there in you know, your early 20s, Paul. But Paul doesn't do that. 
Instead, part of what he writes in Romans chapter 8 is God works all things together for the good of those who love him. God works all things together for good. He's not saying that everything that happens in our life is good, but he is saying that God can use it, uh, transform it into something that is good in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Uh, One of the writers, thinkers that uh, my wife and I have been learning a lot from the last several years, a guy named Richard Rohr, and there's a phrase that he has nothing wasted that my wife has been reminding me of a lot uh, the last several months. It, It comes from this statement that Rohr writes, in the great economy of grace, which how about that for an awesome phrase, in the great economy of grace, all is used and transformed and nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And so when we find ourselves in those at last places of our life, where on one hand we're celebrating the growth and the change that's happening, and on the other hand there's disappointment and maybe even a little shame that it didn't come sooner, a couple of things for us to maybe consider. What if instead of being upset about our past, uh, wanting to forget our past, uh, being mad about our past, what if we could simply learn to forgive our past? Because if we do not learn to forgive our past, we end up projecting our past onto the people around us in hurtful ways. And what I mean by projecting is if there's something in my own life that I'm working on that God is bringing about a change and transformation, but it's not happening as fast as I want it to, and I'm a little upset by that, when I see somebody else exhibiting the same behavior, I have a tendency to get upset at them and project my disappointment and shame about myself and my own ability to change onto them. And they receive it as Scott's ashamed of me. Scott's disappointed in me when really it has nothing to do with them at all. And so if we can learn to forgive our past, part of what that does is it it creates a foundation of love and acceptance and we can stand on that foundation as we interact with the people around us. A foundation of love and acceptance rather than rejection and shame. And this is part of the reason why groups are so important. Around hope, we have this catchphrase, we're better together. It means all sorts of things. It means Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. We do church as a team. We want you to be in a community. Our vision statement is not to be a spirited and growing and Christ-centered individual, but a spirited and growing Christ-centered community. When we find ourselves in a group where we know we are loved, a group where it's a judgment-free zone, where people know we are far from perfect and they love us anyway, one of the things that that does is causes us to consider, maybe I'm lovable, maybe I can love myself, maybe I can forgive myself if the people around me are willing to do it, if God is willing to do that, and then that can set us free to love and forgive the people around us. If you want a picture of what I'm trying to talk about, it might look something like this. Find yourself a group where you are known and you are loved. And as you receive their love, as you receive their acceptance, you begin to forgive and love yourself, your past, and then that frees you to forgive and love others. A a phrase that might kind of sum up what we're talking about, compassion is the antidote to shame. Compassion is the antidote to shame. So when we find ourselves saying, I wish I would have changed sooner. I wish I would have seen that sooner. I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger. Part of what is underneath or behind those kinds of statements is shame. Like there is something, you know, 
wrong with me at, at a core level, that I just do not have what it takes. There's something wrong with me. Compassion is the antidote to shame. And, and part of what Christian community is supposed to do, it function as a mirror. That we all have these blind spots, these things that we cannot see about ourselves. Christian community lovingly with compassion and grace holds up the mirror to help us start to see those things that without community we just can't see. And if it's in this safe, loving, accepting, kind, judgment-free place, then we can explore. I wonder why I've continued to do that time after time after time. I wonder why I think that's actually a, a helpful strategy to employ as I relate to people when it turns out it's not really helpful at all. And we dig into that and we learn how to forgive our past and receive that love so that instead of hurting the people around us, we can actually love the people around us. And it happens one Kairos moment at a time. Kairos moment, a moment when God shows up in just the right way at just the right time to propel our faith forward. Again, think about it. If we're using these statements like, I wish I would have learned sooner, I mean, I'm so disappointed I didn't see this earlier. Part of what we're saying there embedded in those kind of statements is a rejection of grace. Because grace kind of begins with the assumption, I don't get very many things right the first time, and most of us don't. And so we need grace. We are reliant on grace, an opportunity to have a do-over and to get it right, not on our own strength, but because of the grace of God. And one of the things I love about this movie is the way it just is grace moment after grace moment after grace moment. As you watch this scene, be looking for kairos moments and grace and compassion and see what God might be teaching you in this particular moment. Take a look. I think I've learned the final lesson from my travels in time. And I've even gone one step further than my father did. The truth is, I now don't travel back at all, not even for the day. I just try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to this one day, to enjoy it as if it was the full, final day of my extraordinary, ordinary life. I don't get many things right the first time, in fact, I am told that a lot Now I know all the wrong turns and stumbles and falls brought me here yeah. Good. Good. Hello, you're down already, that's great. Thank you so much for that. And in we go. Where was Posey. I before the Posey. day traveling through time together, every day of our lives. All we can do is do our best.
to relish this remarkable ride. to travel in time at all because I'm learning to trust the economy of grace, that all the stumbles and falls led me here to this time, to this moment, to this place, where I can receive the compassion and love and grace and forgiveness of God. We remember that when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed. Jesus took some bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. 